Welcome everyone to Mike and Amit Talk Tech. We're here again talking about generative AI in the fifth of our sixth episode series. And in this episode, we're going to jump into the ethical questions of generative AI, of which there are plenty. There's going to be plenty to talk about in this episode. Amit, where do we start? This is a minefield. Oof, where do we start? My goodness. So let's start with ethics, right? Since you mentioned ethics, let's start with ethics. And we touched upon it. You spoke a little bit about ethics and some of the issues that these models have in the last episode when we were talking about applications of these in real world use cases. For me, the ethical aspect of this, I think a good place to start is what I like to consider A, B, and C. A is for accuracy. B is for biases and C is the copyright. So accuracy, can you ethically use this tool knowing fully well that the answers may not be accurate? We know this thing hallucinates. It can give you complete junk. It can cook up stuff that absolutely doesn't exist. B is bias. Uh, I think we've all had some experience with this. There was a survey. If you ask any one of the image generation versions of GenAI to generate an image of a CEO, there's a 94% probability it'll be male. If you ask it to generate an image of a cashier, 88% probability female. And then finally, copyright. Where is this pulling things from? What data was used to train the original model? You use it to create a new slogan for your product, which this can do, and it can probably create a pretty cool sounding slogan. Can you be sure that it has not just picked that line from some copyrighted work somewhere? And these are some real genuine issues. What are your thoughts on this, Mike? Those are all big ones. I mean, let's start with copyright. There is little doubt, even though they're not transparent about it, they are ironically not open, but there's a little doubt that OpenAI, when they were training their model, they trained it on, on copyright data, at least some of it's copyright. We see the Authors Guild of America suing OpenAI for this, including, you know, people like John Grisham and George Martin, who wrote the Game of Thrones series, you know, you know, he was querying the database and it was coming up with a stuff that could only have come from his books. So he was pretty sure that there was copyright material in there. That's an issue, a concern. It's also one of the reasons why they're slow to update. It moved from September 2021 to January 2022, but you know, cleaning the data is tricky. And, and along with the, the copyright is the personal privacy question. So personally identifiable information, PII, is in there as well. And to what extent is that okay? To what extent is it ethical? To what extent is it legal that that's the case? So there's all kinds of information around that. And that doesn't seem to be going away. That's only going to increase. And, and it's tricky, Amit, because let's say you strip out the personally identifiable information. Does what you're talking about still make sense? You know, it, suddenly you, you lose the context. You lose the meaning when you take away people's names, company names, brands. I mean, it's all suddenly you have this data that's not as meaningful as it used to be. And, and you add to that the fact that companies like Google are now planning to use video data specifically from YouTube, obviously, to train this. And like you said, I can only see this problem getting nastier because now all of a sudden you don't just have words and names, you have visuals, perhaps of people's homes, perhaps of their vehicles, perhaps obviously of their faces and their kids' faces. And how are you going to manage that kind of personal information and work with the copyright. 
You might have information about people's gender and sexual orientations based on videos. This gets very, very tricky very, very quickly, doesn't it? It does get tricky very quickly. And, and this is you know linked to your second, your second point, which is biases. So there are uh, biases. Fundamentally, these models are trained on the human corpus of information, everything on the internet, everything in Wikipedia, everything on GitHub and Reddit and the Gutenberg project and all that. And if there's biases in there, there certainly will be biases in those data sets. There's no question about it. As, as you say, you ask it to create a, an, an image of a nurse and it's a good chance it's going to be female. Why? Because there's more female nurses in the data set, right? So it's not trying to be intentionally biased or racist or, or whatever. It's just reflecting those biases and that racism such that it exists in the data set. And also, as you're using reinforced learning with human feedback, if there's biases in the humans that are giving the feedback, that are training the model, then it's going to reinforce that, right? The models are going to be reinforced by those biases that, that come from come from the humans. So there's there are biases in there. You could argue the biases because of the data set is so big is less than sort of any individual or small group would have, but they are there. And I think there's something else happening, Amit. As these models are being careful not to say and do things that, you know, will get them on the front page of the New York Times, they're putting in guardrails. Now, another way of referring to a guardrail is a bias, right? You're, you're actually inserting these biases in the model. So, I mean, maybe for good reasons, but nevertheless, bias it's, all the same. That's a terrific point. That's a terrific point. Because when you put in guardrails, when you sanitize the output of this, you are, as the software developer, as OpenAI, as Google, as Lama, as whomever, you are making a choice one way or the other. And you are absolutely introducing biases. So, so let me ask you this question, and this is something that's been troubling me for a while. Do you think regulations are the answer to this? So regulations at the level of governments, like regulations at the level of corporations, do you think self-regulation is a way out of this? I'm really struggling with this, given that you know sensible regulations will obviously make sense. But again, the probability that we'll get just the perfect level of regulations to still encourage innovation while tamping down on all the negative stuff is low, to put it mildly. My instinct is usually to, to keep regulators and government bodies and so forth away from tech because they don't understand it and they're likely to make things worse as they have done in the past a number of times. But in this particular case, I'm actually pro-regulation. I, I, I think because the downside is relatively high, if the downside wasn't high, I'd say, you know, so be it. We, we make mistakes. But the downside is relatively high if you weaponize these things, if it's systematically biasing against particular groups, if it's, you know, making a system less fair rather than more fair. I mean, there's lots of ways that these systems could insert, you know, really negative bias. So, so I think reg regulation is a good idea. But there's a couple of things. I mean, it can't just be one nation because these things don't stop at borders. It's got to be multinational. And even if you manage to get that regulation passed, enforcement, how are you going to enforce it? I mean, practically speaking, I mean, the big companies will follow the rules, but it's going to be hard to manage the smaller companies and, and never mind the individuals who are creating things in their basements. So 
I do think regulation is a good idea, in, and hopefully it'll, the net that you cast will pick up most of the bad players, most of the, the big guys. But I think enforcement is going to be a challenge. So let's talk about something that happened exactly a couple of weeks ago that's very, very related to what you just said. Uh, you're obviously aware, and some of our readers, might, uh, some of our listeners might be aware of this as well. The Hollywood writers have been on strike for a while, and the strike finally got settled, and they reached an agreement with the Hollywood studios. The writers reached an agreement with the Hollywood studios. Well, the agreement that was reached actually has some specific statements regarding generative AI. And this is the first time in history that statement regarding AI, let alone generative AI, has made it into a workers' agreement, uh, into a union agreement. The problem that I have with that is, is exactly what you said. How do you enforce this? I mean, for example, one of the lines in that agreement is that writer's work will not be used to train future generation of generative AI. Okay, in principle, that sounds fantastic. How do you enforce this? How do you stop me from simply taking an electronic copy of your script and using this as training data for, for GPT-5, for instance? What recourse do you have? How do you even prove this? Unless you put a, some kind of a digital watermark. Now, you know, Adobe is talking about digital watermarking documents or images, but you could imagine any kind of technology solution could be defeated by other technology, as we've seen in the past. And this is leading us to another topic, which is your cybersecurity. You know, we're talking about the good uses of these things, but if you can write a very convincing email that's personalized, you know, how easy it is, is it going to be to do a little bit of social engineering and get somebody, get the employee tricked into giving information they shouldn't give and having somebody attack. So there's those kind of scary negative use cases too. Whenever, you know, it's two sides of a coin. You have the positive, but then you have the negative. Or how about somebody actually mimics the voice of your, the voice of your boss from recordings, from analyst calls, from wherever on the internet they can find them and uses that to come up with a really convincing voicemail message. Deep fakes. Deep fakes, deep fakes, and you know they're getting better and better. Images have been have been pretty good for a while. Audio is now getting extremely good, and video, video is is on the way. Now we've seen some examples of video that looks pretty good, but you know it takes a lot of time to build. And now that these tools are going back into how to regulate this thing, if somebody in their basement can just download some software and create a deep fake of whomever you, Amit. We could get you talking about cricket in a very negative light, and that could never that could never be you. Yeah, no chance. That's that's a dead giveaway that that's a deep fake if it's talking negatively about cricket, right? So you talked about regulation from a government point of view, and and I'm pro that. Now, what do you do from an organizational point of view? Again, similar to your point of view, Mike, I strongly believe that this is one of those times where organizations need to be a little proactive and have basic common sense kinds of guidelines. I'm not saying heavily regulated. Please definitely don't ban it. Don't block it. Worst idea ever, because guess what your employees are doing when they go home? They're kind of just using it again. So please don't ban it. But please also don't have a laissez-faire, you know, do what you will kind of an attitude. Have common sense baseline regulations. Try to monitor it. Try to encourage usage and experimentation with it. But at some point, I guess you got to hope for the best and hope that employees are using it for the right things and for the benefit of the organization, right? 
I think so. I think you, you put in policies, you give people training so they understand what, what it can do and, and what it can't do. You add incentives, so positive incentives, right? So that um, people are encouraged to use it for to help with their own productivity, but also, you know, negative incentives to, to, to not do bad stuff. You can also now work with, there's, there's many vendors, including the big ones that are offering the ability to have some kind of a ring-fenced version that's safer. I say safer, it's not going to be completely safe, but safer than public uh, version. Because as we said, you know, our last episode, the productivity advantage was so big. Why would you not leverage the power of uh, that technology? And by the way, your competitors are doing it. Yep. There's no chance that you're going to stop them. But speaking of safety, Mike, hallucinations, right? Everybody knows this thing hallucinates. Do you think we will ever completely get rid of these hallucinations? So maybe not completely because it's just, it's the nature of, you know, it's different than traditional AI. It's not rule-based, go into a data set, follow these rules, get the insights. It's not like a calculator. These are models are trained on large data sets and then you apply that model into new data and, you know, you get a result. And so it can hallucinate. You just have to know, I, I think it'll be, it'll be reduced because the models will get better at it and recognizing the fact when they do hallucinate. I think it's also a matter of, of setting up the prompts in a way to minimize the chance of getting hallucinations. I mean, you can ask it by default, you know, I want you to set out your steps, right? Show me all the steps. I want you to show me all the sources. You know, you can make it harder for it to hallucinate and it will just be built in. But will we ever get rid of it? I don't think so, because that's just the nature of the, of the way the technology works. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I don't think hallucinations ever go away. I think we can reduce them. We will always need to have policies and systems to cross-check the output from this, especially in critical use cases. This will get better, but I don't think it'll ever get perfect. And one more comment on that. You know, we see hallucinations typically as a bad thing, as a negative, but it's not necessarily a negative, right? If, if you're looking for, if you have a creative task, then hallucinations can maybe give you an insight that you wouldn't otherwise have. You wouldn't get there. So whether it's, you know, an image or whether it's a text or, you know, whatever it is, hallucinations sometimes actually help you to break a creative block. Or it's a new molecule, right? I mean, just the other day, a few weeks ago, at IMD, as a matter of fact, I met a participant who is a biologist by training and works at Google. And I was very, very puzzled, saying, what are you, as a biologist, what, what are you doing at Google? And what she told me was that she is using the generative AI model at Google, the higher version that they have inside, to actually hallucinate new versions of molecules that can fight diseases that you know, you and I or biologists on Earth cannot think of in terms of solutions. Because this thing has no limits to its creativity. It really has no limits in the kinds of molecules and uh, medicines that it can create. So imagine the potential for this. I mean, we could potentially fight cancer and COVID and malaria and tuberculosis and diseases that kill millions all over the world through molecules we could not even dream about till yesterday. I mean, it's just uh, fascinating. Fantastic use cases. AI, traditional AI has been good uh, for a long time. You know, you and I four years ago visited a company that was that had AI that was, re, you know, looking at radiograms or like uh, radiography and trying to, you know, find cancers and so forth. I mean, that's traditional AI. That's traditional AI. 
But with the turbocharge of, of generative AI, you can do so much more. Like you say, you can generate new insights. You can find new molecules. You can do massive searches. There's so, so much of the literature, you get the sense that a lot of the really interesting breakthroughs have already been made, but just because it's just so much noise, you can't find the signal that these things can find those those signals that were hidden before. So there's great opportunities, I think, for, for science and medicine to advance. And as you said, the hallucinations actually is not a negative thing when it comes to that. So since we are talking this thing up so much, Mike, let me ask you the obvious question, perhaps as a wrap to this particular episode. Do you think this thing is conscious or do you think this thing is capable of consciousness? Huh. Well, they're two different questions, right? And we will get into this in our next episode. I do not believe at the moment that it is conscious. Does it have the ability to be conscious? I doubt it, but you know, it's moving so quickly. Who knows? And what do you think? Same thing, a little stronger. It is not only is it not conscious right now, I don't think it is going to be conscious ever. Not with the current technology we have. And we'll talk more about this in the next episode. We will, but before we go there, we got one other important topic on the ethical question. So we've talked about copyright, privacy. We talked about deep fakes, biases. We talked about lack of transparency. We talked about regulation. One thing we haven't talked about is power consumption and environmental impacts. And I think we're going to talk about ethical issues. This has to be discussed because these things are, wow, incredibly, incredibly power intensive. They're very dirty. They don't seem like it, but they're incredibly dirty. Incredibly dirty. You could put in a prompt, you know, something goofy, write a verse in the style of the King James Bible explaining how to wash a cat with peanut butter. I don't know. And, you know, it's funny and it's goofy, but that prompt is going to use billions of neural networks or neurons in a neural network to come up with the answer. And so the environmental impact of these models is not trivial. No, I, I read somewhere, and correct me if I'm wrong, a few dozen prompts or a few dozen queries require boiling of about a liter of water to cool these systems. I've seen something similar to that. They've done estimates, I mean, nobody really knows, but they've done estimates to say that, you know, training the AI, open AI model chat G GPT, so the, the 3.5, the, the original one, you know, used about the same amount of power to fly from New York to San Francisco three times. That's just training the model. Then you've got to actually run the model. Some people are saying to run the model for a month, you could power all the homes in Copenhagen. You know, they, no, nobody really knows but it's a lot of power and a lot of water for cooling. You know, Microsoft, which has made very ambitious targets, I think that they want to be carbon negative, right, by 2035, relatively quickly. And they're in trouble because, because their power consumption is going up, their water use is going up because these, you know, these data sensors need to be cooled, these prompts need, need to be run. And there is really today no shortcut. They're just massively power-intensive uh, technologies today. Well, there you have it, folks. The yin and the yang. The upside and the downside of this technology. Right, Mike? That's right. It's not all positive. So that brings us to the close of this episode. And we have one more in the series. And that will be when we look at the future. So we will cast our eyes forward to try and predict what is going to happen in the future with this technology. 
stay tuned for that. If you want more information about us, uh, this podcast or IMD, you can find us at imd.org. And with that, we'll see you all later. See you next time.